Well, good morning again. Uh, this morning, our text is going to be from Exodus chapter 23. We're going to be looking at verses 20 through 33. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, that's fine. Um, it'll be on your screen. We'll also have it in the app as well. All that'll be there in your app as well. You'll find a sermon outline where you can take notes and, and to engage in the sermon uh, if you like to that way. So we're going to be in Exodus chapter 23. We're going to look at verses 20 through 33. There's going to be some, uh, some things in here that's going to make us ask some questions. And uh, my hope is that we answer this and I don't make it as clear as mud for us. So y'all pray for me and let's hear what God's word says for us. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you can carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and bring, bring, brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God and he will bless your bread and your water and I will take sickness away from you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send a hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from you, from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness of the Euphrates, for I Give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. You shall not, uh, they shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Chaos, carnage, blood, fear, destruction was all around the U.S. Marines as they were invading Normandy on the beaches of Omaha in France. Years later, one of the Marines that, were, that was uh, inside of this, um, this invasion was interviewed, and the interviewer asked him, what were you thinking while you were on the beach? And this Marine said that as he looked around and he saw the destruction, he was hopeless. He was terrified. He didn't know how the war was going to conclude, and in that moment, he felt like the war was over. A second interviewer, a second interviewee was interviewed, and the lady asked him, she said, well, what did you think uh, was going to happen in the war? And this person was not on the beach fighting with the Marines, but he was in the Air Force flying over the beaches of Normandy in an airplane. And he said as he looked down, he could see the Marines advancing up the beach. He could see uh, the uh, artillery from the airplanes destroying machine gun nests. He could see the paratroopers flying in and pushing back the enemy and breaking their strongholds. And the Air Force pilot 
told this lady, he said, I knew we were going to win. These two perspectives, one on the beach, one in the sky, help us understand what life is like this side of heaven. There's one perspective of the Marine on the beach getting uh, uh, hit on every side. And life is like that sometimes. And you feel like there's no way we're going to win this. The evil is too strong in the world. My sin is too great. I'm utterly defeated. And there's another perspective that sees the carnage and the sin of this life and who turns to God's word and sees the aerial view and sees that this battle is painful. It is hard, but we have God's promised victory. And our text for us this morning is that aerial view reminding us that we are in a battle with sin. We are in a battle with evil in this world, but take heart, God has promised us victory. The question is, how does God accomplish this victory? We accomplished it, accomplishes it in three ways. You'll notice God works through his means, through his means, on his schedule for his glory. Through his means, on his schedule for his glory. And we see God work through his means in verses 20 through 22. It's in these verses where God is instructing the people to pay very careful attention to this angel, to not to rebel against this angel because God's name is in this angel. God instructs that they are to obey this angel's voice and to do all that he says because this angel is able to pardon transgressions. This is our first series of questions that gives us pause. What in the world is this? Who is this angel? What's going on here? Why does this angel speak for God? If you look in the text, you'll see that God refers to the angel as he, but also as himself. This is really difficult language. What's going on here? How can an angel actually forgive sin? Well, when you come to confusing parts of the Bible, it's good to look elsewhere in the Bible to help explain what's going on in the Bible. So uh, to help answer this question, think to Mark chapter two. It's here Jesus heals a paralytic and he says to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now this is an emphatic statement by Jesus. This is uh, a sovereignty declared by Jesus. Jesus is saying that I'm able to forgive you for your sins. And the scribes listening heard Jesus say this and said, nah, -uh, that's blasphemy because only God can forgive sins. So we see the, the picture starting to unfold for us. If, if God is the only one who can forgive sins and this angel is separate from God, but God's name is in him. Now name is just something more than to identify something, meaning the presence. Is God's presence is in that angel, then we are to conclude that this angel is the second person of the Trinity it's the pre-incarnate Jesus. And pre-incarnate means a time before Jesus came to earth as a human being. And this shouldn't be too shocking for us because we've seen the pre-incarnate Jesus appear already throughout Exodus in several places. One being the burning bush, the second the mount where Jesus was there, and the, the mountain burst forth this huge amount of water, and then we see Jesus again. And this is important for us because Jesus' presence is very telling. 
And why is this important? Well, think about where Israel is at this point. They are in between Egypt and the promised land. They're in between their former slavery and this land of absolute promise. And Jesus is there with them. He's caring for them. He's leading them. He's teaching them. And he's promising them blessings and these uh, categories of blessings, meaning uh, your land will be fertile, your families will be fertile. I'll protect your health. I'll give you long days if you listen to me. So Jesus is there with them, bringing these blessings because of their obedience. What God is doing in this is he is teaching Israel spiritual realities through physical blessings and experiences. And we've got to get that, okay? What God is doing with Israel is teaching them spiritual realities through physical blessings and experiences. The reason why I say we need to get that is because there's a danger in understanding this text with the one-to-one correlation. The one danger is if I obey perfectly, then I will receive material and physical blessings based on my obedience. Well, that can't be the case because Jesus was perfectly obedient and he ended up on a cross. So that can't be the source of our blessing. The other ditch in this with a one-to-one correlation is that if I mess up, then God is going to crush me. He's going to remove all blessing from me, but we also know that that is not the case because Jesus was crushed on our behalf for us. Jesus took the full wrath of God for sinners on the cross. So how do we understand this passage? For us, we experience Israel's blessings and experiences primarily spiritually because we live in a time after the death and resurrection of Jesus, after the time where Jesus has sent his spirit to dwell in our hearts and to be with us. And just like Israel, going through this physical wilderness, we live in a time where we are engaging in spiritual wilderness as well, awaiting our promised inheritance. And just like Israel, who's instructed here to listen to Jesus, we are to do the same thing. Jesus dwells in us by his spirit. We are to trust his word as he speaks for God. God said of Jesus in Luke chapter nine, he said, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Jesus confirms that he's the one to be listened to in John 14, six. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life that no one can come to the Father except through him. And just like Israel being promised all of these blessings in 25 and 26, we receive something much greater than just physical blessings here on earth. We receive spiritual blessings. And what are those spiritual blessings? Well, there's a host of them. We have uh, in faith in Jesus we have assurance of the forgiveness of sins and salvation. We have the assurance that when Jesus said it's finished, that he meant it, that there's nothing else we have to earn or do to please God. That's so freeing for us. By God's spirit, we have peace that passes understanding. So that means in the middle of very difficult times where we're battling sin, 
where we're seeing evil around us, where our hearts and our sin get the best of us and we mess up maybe tremendously, we have the ability to have God's forgiveness and peace in those moments and turn to God in repentance and find that he loves us. We have the ability to fight against our sins. We have access to God 24-7 through the intercession of Jesus, meaning that when we pray in Jesus' name through faith, God hears us as he hears Jesus. That's phenomenal. We have these spiritual blessings that's greater than any material or physical blessing on earth. We can have everything stripped from us and still have Jesus and be perfectly content and we can find peace. We can have security. We can have a loving, intimate relationship with the God of all universe for all of eternity and knowing these beautiful truths secured in the resurrected Christ, because of this, we have hope. We have hope in this wilderness, in these times that we live in, awaiting for our promised land. We have hope in the middle of all the challenges before us. So how does God work out his victory? Well, we see through his means, through Jesus, but secondly, we see he works through his schedule. And we see that in verses Um, 28, and after Israel's instructed to follow Jesus, God reveals that he's going to drive out the inhabitants of the land, and he's gonna do it little by little, not all at once. And another question that comes to mind is, well, why is God commanding this uh, conquest and sending hornets or some sort of force or plague Against these Canaanites, that seems pretty horrible, right? We need to ask, what were these Canaanites like? How should God respond to sin? Well, the Canaanites and the inhabitants of this land, they were no innocent people. Their culture was replete with cult prostitution, with child sacrifice, with incest. It was Horrible. That's the G version of the Canaanite culture. And knowing what these people were like, it changes the question from how could God do this to these people? It changes the question to why would God let any of them escape? You see, so because of their worship of Baal, because of their culture was so debased, what God is doing is bringing judgment upon these people. He's forcing them out little by little, and you could be saying, well, isn't God the God of mercy? Where is God's mercy in this situation? Well, if you remember, even non-Israelites are allowed to be a part of God's people through faith just like the multitude that left with Israel after the plagues in Egypt. There were Egyptians that turned to God and fled out of Egypt with Israel. Not only that, but Rahab was a spy living in this land and she heard about God's might and his power and she had this confession. She said, Israel's God is the God in the heavens and above the earth. So through faith and trusting in God, God is moving slowly and surely through this land, big picture spiritually giving people time to repent 
and to turn to him, but he's also giving us very practical reasons why God is working little by little, why he's not driving these people out all at once. The text tells us if he just moved out all the Canaanites, then the land would become desolate, that the land would be overgrown, that wild beasts would come and be a danger to the people. So God is slowly and relentlessly working through his people in this country, enlarging his territory for his people. And God is working the same way today in us and in his church. Think about it. When we become Christians, we don't automatically go straight to heaven, do we? No, God saves us, and then he allows us to live this life with a changed heart, with renewed uh, affections. And by God's spirit, he allows us to live and be slowly changed more and more into the image of Jesus. Theologians call this process sanctification, right? This is, this is a slow process. It's sometimes a very painful process, but God is deliberate and relentless in this. In sanctification, God is slowly revealing to us his goodness. He slowly reveals to us our sins. He does this through the word, through prayer, through worship, through our circumstances, good and bad circumstances. God does all of this to us slowly because if he dropped on us his goodness at one point, we would be completely undone. And if he dropped on us all of our sin at one time and showed us the depravity of our hearts, we would also be undone and we would implode. God is graciously through our lives chipping away at our sin little by little over time. And as we look back after the years and months and weeks, we can start to see that there's a change taking place in us because God loves us and he works that way. And God's working that way in the church as well. God is slowly enlarging his territory all throughout this world. He's growing his church. He's reaching the corners of this world with the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus. But if you're anything like me, you grow impatient. You get tired of battling your sins. You get tired of seeing that same nagging habit pop up over and over and over again. You feel like, God, am I ever going to see any relief here? God, I'm so tired of battling the same sin, repenting for the same thing, apologizing to people the same way over and over again. You might even get impatient with other people. Why won't they just trust Jesus? How many more times do I have to share the gospel with this hard head? How many more times do I have to pray for this person over and over again? Am I gonna pray my whole life? Am I even gonna see this person's conversion before I die? Who knows? You might not. Don't forget our prayers for things and people are covenantal. They expand much greater distances of time than just us. We're the product today of people hundreds of years ago praying for us that the gospel would come to this new world. God works through covenants, through centuries. We have a hope for why we pray, though. The good news, Steve Brown often says, is that God loves us so much that if we never change, he'll love us the same. But he loves us too much to leave us the same. You see, and just like Israel, going through this physical wilderness, this physical battle, we are in a spiritual battle against our sin, the world, 
and Satan. But like that Marine on Omaha Beach, we don't need to look around at the temporary. We don't need to look around and admit defeat, but what we need to do is keep our eyes on the promises of God found in his word that reminds us in Ephesians 6:10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. In Philippians 1, 6, that remember that he who began a good work in you will complete it. One of my seminary professors would always say that God is rarely early, he's never late, and he's right on time. And so because God works on his own timetables, because God has promised us victory, we can keep battling our sins. We can keep praying and interceding and lifting our friends and family members and coworkers up to the Lord. We can continue to be salt and light to the people that were around in our spheres of influence. We can do all of this because God has promised us victory and in those attempts to live this out when we fail, the victory also applies to our forgiveness. We have forgiveness found in the resurrected Jesus over and over and over again. And this is the little battles and the little victories that God is working. So how is God going to work out this promised victory? By his means, on his schedule, and finally we see it for his glory. And we see God working out for his glory uh, all throughout this text, but in verse 24, he tells Israel not to worship the Canaanite gods, to serve them only, and to do, in doing so, in verses 32 and 33, they're to destroy their pillars and to make no covenant with these gods because these gods will be a snare to Israel. Question, if God is doing all of this for his glory, then why does he command the people to tear down their pillars? Shouldn't they just be satisfied with God? Can't they just live in this culture and just keep a blind eye to these pillars? Well, there's something particularly uh, terrible about these pillars. These pillars were 10 foot high. You would be able to see them from a huge distance. They were made of wood and stone. And in these pillars, uh, the Canaanite culture, the Egyptian cultures, uh, the ancient Near East cultures believed that various deities, various little gods would inhabit these stones. And what would take place is throughout the year, they would have these pretty horrendous worship uh, ceremonies. And I'm not going into them, but they were uh, pretty disgusting. <clears throat> so God is saying, when you tear down these pillars, you are saying to yourselves, to our people and to everyone, that there are no other gods that exist in heaven and on earth, that I am the only God of this world, and I will be the only God to dwell amongst our people. And God gives us that refrain over and over. He says, I will be their God, and they will be my people. So, God's people were to join in this work that God is doing, and through their obedience in joining this work, they were to remove all these gods, but they were also to join God's work in being vigilant and not making peace treaties and covenant treaties with them. God is saying that you do not need to be, uh, you don't need to let your guard down around their sin. You don't need to take sin lightly. God is reminding them that 
False gods will only snare, they will only trap, they will only destroy you, and God is the only God that brings freedom. He's, he knows the hearts of Israel. He knows the hearts of humanity. He knows the power that little creeping sin can have in our lives. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, bad company corrupts good character. And we see the corrupting nature of flirting with our sin today. Researcher John Lear calls this the power trap. And in this thesis of research, he stated that um, as we climb, excuse me one second, <coughs> as we climb the social ladder, we're nice on the ladder, but once we reach the top, we start acting like, and he quotes this, a beast. That's not my word. He says, we become a beast once we hit the top of the social ladder. He writes, it's an incredibly consistent effect. When you give people power, they basically start acting foolishly. They flirt inappropriately, tease in a hostile fashion, and become totally impulsive. He goes on to compare the, uh, how power corrupts uh, our natures by showing that uh, a person who experiences a lot of power acts so impulsively like a person who has a damaged frontal lobe. They did brain scans of these people, and the frontal lobe is this area of the brain that controls empathy and decision-making. Listen to this study. He noted a study in which psychologists asked members of a high-power group about speeding. The group concluded that it was okay for them to speed, but that it was important for others to follow the posted speed limit. Rationale was that they're powerful people, and powerful people are important, and they had a good reason for speeding. Lear concludes his study, he says, even the most virtuous people can be undone by the corner office. This applies to our text. Once we start experiencing success, once Israel moves into the land and God starts moving the people out, it's easy for them to start resting. We love getting to places of... Um, uh, plateauing. We like to get really comfortable and rest there. God knows it's in these moments where we can be corrupted by sin, where we can let our guard down, where we can forget that we need God's help continually. And we see this in our own lives. We see how we can become complacent with our sin. We could be in good seasons and feel like, well, I can dabble in a little bit of sin. It happens to us slowly. Sin is very tricky. Sin isolates, it deteriorates. It's kind of like a dog who loves to be scratched, and when you scratch that dog's ear, little itching and a scratching, what does that dog like? More and more, right? That's what playing with sin is like. You give it a little itching and a scratching, and then it needs just a little bit more, a little bit more. And then how do you get rid of that uh, animal? You have to swipe it gently, stop! You have to do something drastic, right? But then it comes back over and over. So how does this apply in our life? What's that itching and a scratching sin like in our lives? Take gossip. Take talking about other people. You know, here's what giving in looks like. There's people in your group and they start talking about someone else. Here's the itching and a scratching. You kinda don't like them and so you just listen. You don't say nothing, but you're like, oh, I know that about them. Can't stand them. Oh, they're right. Oh, yeah. Then over time, what happens? 
Just listening doesn't give you the same effect. You need more itching and a scratching. So what do you do then? You start sharing a little bit of information, then it feels good. And then, oh, now we're really into it. Then over time, you just have this massive gossip circle where everyone's one-upping each other, talking about everybody else's business. And then what happens to your friend group? Then all of you start talking about each other, and then over time, you've burned bridges, destroyed relationships, you have no friends, and you're known as a gossip. Because if you'll say that about somebody behind their back, what in the world are you saying about me behind my back? People will pick up on it. Where else do we see this? Think about envy and jealousy. We live in a social media culture. There's so many dangers here. One danger is the judgmental side. It's looking at other people's things and saying, Christians shouldn't spend their money on that. How dare they have nice things? It's all discontentment. It's all from a root of envy. Another way it works out is uh, the little itching and a scratching becomes slowly looking at things and comparing yourself to others and their things online. And you see people's highlight reels and you look and you start to become discontent with what God's given you. Oh, they got more hair than I do. Oh man, y'all shouldn't laugh at that. And over time, you start to wish you had those things. Over time, you, you start to tear yourself down, maybe to the point where you do drastic things to be like someone else. You might go in, we're seeing this right now, millennials going into massive debt to fund vacations just that have a more popular Instagram account. This is real. This envy is, is toxic, it, it eats at us. A little itching and a scratching doesn't go away. You need the power of Christ by his spirit through his resurrection to come and live in you and to say, stop, to say, look to me, to find contentment and peace in me. And that's one of the massive spiritual blessings we get when we trust in Jesus. And for all of us, this is a constant war. This is a constant battle. You can't get complacent in battling your sin. This is momentary. It's daily. We are living in this battle. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 12, he says, we are battling spiritual forces of evil. And that evil is not just out there, but it's in us. And knowing this, then, we don't give in to fear, but we stand firm in Jesus, knowing that our victory over sin is promised knowing that when we turn to God in those moments of pain and suffering without giving in to self-pity and anger at God and turning to sin for relief, when we turn to Jesus, even as painful as that is, we know that one day all of this will be worth it because of who Jesus is. Our victory is bound in him. There was a professor named Professor McDonald at the University of Glasgow, and he tells a story about he and a uh, Scottish chaplain who were on a plane in World War II, and they were hit, and they bailed out of the plane, and they ended up behind enemy lines. McDonald and the chaplain, they were captured. They were prisoners of war in a war camp uh, occupied by the Germans. They had the Americans on one side and the British on another, there was this massive fence that stood in between them, trying to make communication between the two parties 
very difficult. What the Germans didn't know is that the Americans had created a homemade radio, and what would happen is they would get information about the war and what was happening, and they would communicate between the two fences. Uh, but how would they communicate if the Germans knew English? Well, MacDonald and this chaplain, they both spoke Gaelic, which is this old ancient language, and they would communicate the news that they were getting over the radio in Gaelic. So the German guards had no clue what was happening. Well, towards the end of the war, the Americans got the information that the Germans had surrendered, that the war was over. And so MacDonald comes to the chaplain and he tells him in Gaelic, and then a few moments later, the chaplain goes back to the Brits, and then all of a sudden you hear this massive roar. And for three days, they were cheering and they were celebrating in this prisoner camp, in this war camp held by the Germans. And for three days, the Germans were like, what is going on with these prisoners? They are smiling at us. They're waving at us. They're giving our guard dogs little itchings and a scratchings. What is happening? They didn't realize that the war was over. Three days later, the guards found out the war was over and in the middle of the night, like the cowards that they were, they opened up the gates, fled into the darkness, and the American prisoners and the British prisoners, they walked out in freedom. But what the guards didn't know is that they were already free in the middle of the prison because they knew the war was over. The victory had been secured. Just like this good news that their victory was won in the middle of this camp that brought these prisoners hope and peace and joy, the good news about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection gives all of us unspeakable joy, gives us peace that passes understanding. It gives us hope in the middle of a prison camp. Sometimes life feels that way. It gives us hope in the middle of painful circumstances, knowing that Jesus is risen, knowing that every tear we shed on earth will be bottled. And when you meet Jesus, it's gonna be poured over you in joy and happiness. And God is going to reverse all of the pain that we experience here to its infinite, perfect degree. And we're gonna look back and remember all of it was worth it. The pain we endured, the sadness, the trials, all of it will be worth it when we meet Jesus. Revelation 21 tells us that we will see Jesus face to face, that he will wipe away every tear from our eye, that death shall be no more, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. God remembers the tears of his saints. He bottles them and he pours out blessings on us. We may experience some of those blessings here on earth, maybe physically, but we're guaranteed when we meet him, we will see him face to face. Our suffering will be worth it. Our trust will be worth it. Our pain, as hard as it is right now, will be worth it because the victory is won in him. So if this morning, if you feel like you're that Marine on Omaha Beach, you feel like the battle is lost, that there's no hope, you look around you and all you see is chaos and destruction. Remember God has promised victory. Remember that Jesus isn't in the grave. Remember that you trust a living God who's here for us by his spirit, who will return for us. That the end of our stories is one of joy, one of victory, one of peace, 
one of satisfaction. We'll spend eternity with God forever. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the good news of the resurrection. Without it, Father, we're to be most pitied. We have no hope. There's no reason for joy. But Father, because Jesus is risen from the grave, because he is alive, because he is with us by his spirit, we have reason to rejoice. We have reason to have peace in the middle of painful circumstances. We have reason to remain obedient and to fight the good fight because it will be worth it when we meet you. God, in the meantime, help us to be humble. Help us to be reliant. Help us to be reminded that in you, Jesus, we are more than conquerors. You are with us day and night. You will not let our foot be moved. You will not let us stumble, but you will uphold us by your righteous arm. We will soar on wings of eagles. Our victory in you is secured. Help us to fight for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.